Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm excited to have with me today in the studio Dr. Megan Kostibas, who is an assistant professor of anesthesia and critical care medicine here at Johns Hopkins. She is dual fellowship trained. She did fellowships in both cardiac anesthesia and critical care. And she is also the associate program director for the Cardiac Anesthesia Fellowship here at Johns Hopkins. And by the way, a fantastic person. Megan, thanks for coming. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So we are going to discuss kind of a basic introduction to cardiac anesthesia. And we're going to talk a little bit about kind of how to prepare for cardiac anesthesia. We'll focus a bulk of our time on coming on and off bypass and how to manage patients on bypass since that's kind of the thing that makes cardiac anesthesia (laughs) stick out. Uh, the most, that and, of course, the physiology of the patients, and we'll talk about that too. And we'll talk a little about the differences between valve surgery and and, uh, coronary artery bypass surgery. And we may, if I can convince Megan, uh, have her come back to do other more advanced topics in the future. But for now, let's jump in. So, Megan, when you are getting ready for a cardiac case of any kind, how do you prepare or have your resident prepare uh, or fellow prepare? What are you looking for in terms of uh, preparation? So, uh, the first thing to do is, is like you would for any uh, anesthetic care, you read about the patient and understand their disease process. Managing a patient that has coronary artery disease and is coming for a, a bypass graft it can be quite a bit different in terms of your management and your induction style than somebody that is having aortic valve replacement for, let's say, aortic stenosis. Um, also, the patients, if they have had any sort of cardiac surgery or thoracic surgery, mediastinal surgery in the past, uh, can be a little bit more demanding. So first, I would say you start with the, the physiology um, uh, and understanding the how you would approach um, uh, induction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so somebody with... Um, Aortic stenosis. Let's say your 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 drugs of choice for induction. I think are are have to be geared towards um, um, managing that stenotic lesion. So, for example, you would uh, keep their heart rate in normal sinus rhythm, avoid tachycardia. Uh, you would also. Uh, want to keep their preload and their afterload uh, on the higher side. Uh, Somebody with a uh, coronary artery disease, uh, you really want to, uh, at induction, keep their uh, mean arterial pressure high or at least normal for that patient. And and one way we do that, uh, one of the things I talk to the residents about is, is the patient, uh, if, if they are feel like there could be some instability with induction, we will place an awake arterial line. So to prep for doing awake arterial line, and that way we continually know the hemodynamics when we are inducing and intubating the patient. Yeah, that's a great point. So how often would you say you do awake A-lines for cardiac patients? Is it most of the time, some of the time? So when do I do an awake A-line or not? So if a patient is coming in from home and they're, you know, been hemodynamically stable and they're coming for a coronary artery bypass graft, um, I will consider doing an asleep A-line because I know that the disease process is going to be coronary ischemia. We just have to keep the, the mean arterial pressure up. Um, however, if they have a very proximal lesion, like a left main stenotic lesion, uh, I will consider doing an awake A-line because typically those are much less forgiving lesions. Also, if it is uh, a patient with a stenotic lesion, aortic stenosis, mitral stenosis, um, I will do an, always do an awake A-line. If they are in any way, of course, unstable, if um, their hemodynamics are unstable, if they've been in the hospital, if they have a... Um, 
an increased oxygen requirement and they're going to not be able to lie flat, I will do an awake A-line. Also, if I'm worried at all about their airway, I don't want to be worrying about their airway and their hemodynamics and their uh, the blood pressure at the same time, I'll do an awake A-line. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Do you ever do awake central lines? Typically, no. Um, uh, situations um, where I would consider it are if a patient is extremely unstable or they're in tamponade and I feel like I need central access before going to sleep. Um, also, um, if it is a patient that... Um, for example, has a mediastinal mass, or like I said, tamponade will also have the surgeons in the room and potentially place lines in the groin uh, in anticipation of them being becoming unstable at induction or intubation. And that would be so you could crash onto bypass. Correct. So what about a patient with severe pulmonary hypertension that you know about going in? Would you ever consider placing a cordis and a PA catheter awake? That is a potential. Um, yes, you could do that. Uh, however, I will say if it's patient usually coming in from home, um, I do feel comfortable going to sleep knowing that I have an awake arterial line. I have vasopressor support readily available, and sometimes we'll start that actually before going to sleep, or not necessarily vasopressor support, but inotropic support like epi, mm-hmm. norepi, dopamine. Um, also, on those situations, it's not a bad idea to have um, nitric or a pulmonary vasodilator in the room, um, mm-hmm. and also the surgeons in the room in anticipation that they could become unstable. Okay, that sounds great. So let's. you mentioned some medications, epinephrine, dopamine, norepinephrine. So what do you like to have ready to go before you ever bring the patient back into the room? So t- typically, this is very institution-dependent and cardiac surgeon-dependent, anesthesiologist-dependent. Um, the at Hopkins, at the training institution I'm at, typically the, the anesthesiologist and the surgeons are more comfortable with starting on a standard case while having epinephrine and sometimes norepinephrine um, in the room. So that, when I pre-op with residents the night before surgery or the, the day of, um, I will always have them order uh, at least epinephrine and sometimes norepinephrine as well um, in the anticipation that we will use it potentially coming off bypass, but also sometimes pre-bypass Okay. Now I'm trying to, I'm reaching back here to when I was a resident doing cardiac. I think we would set, we certainly would set up norepinephrine and epinephrine. I'm, I'm pretty sure we would set up an Amacar drip. Do you guys do that? We do. So studies have shown, uh, specifically in the cardiac surgery world, that using an antifibrinolytic such as um, TXA or Amacar, aminocaproic acid, um, will result in less bleeding and less use of blood products post-surgery. So yes, we set up Amacar uh, that we dose uh, directly after starting anticoagulation with heparin. Okay. And I imagine probably either set up or have ready an insulin drip because these patients tend to get hyperglycemic as well. They get, yes, they do get hyperglycemic um, uh, with the stress of surgery and also increased catecholamines both intrinsic and what we give on the pump. Um, uh, and studies have also shown that very um, vigilant glucose control, our goal is usually a glucose of 140 to 180, have better outcomes, less infection following surgery. Great. All right. So let's go back a minute to the different physiology you mentioned looking at valve, patients with valve pathology versus just pure coronary artery disease. So let's just review kind of because I think it'll be important for people out there. When you're thinking about these patients, what are the kind of major hemodynamic goals you have in mind during your management, especially induction? So you mentioned 
that with someone with bad coronary artery disease, the main thing you're thinking about is that perfusion pressure. So you want to keep the map up. And do, mm-hmm. when we say up, you mean above 65 or what, what is, what do you try to keep it at? I try to keep them at what their, their normal physiologic map is. So if they come to pre-op and their blood pressure is, um, 148 over eight, 140 over 80 and their map is, let's say 105, I usually try to keep it within about 10 to 20% of that. Um, so basically what they are at home. Also, uh, just like any patients that, that is at a risk for coronary ischemia, you want to control their heart rate. You don't want them to get too tachycardic because that's going to increase their oxygen demand and consumption. Right. Well. So on one hand, you want to con- you want to keep up the supply with your map, and on the other hand, decrease your demand by Correct. keeping your heart rate down. All right. And the, the drugs that you can use for that would be any of the above that you mentioned, epinephrine, norepinephrine, phenylephrine. Um, epinephrine, obviously isn't going to do the best job of keeping the heart rate down. Um, so for someone with coronary artery disease during induction, do you have a, a presser or inotrope or, or medication of choice you use to, to maintain that map? Typically, if it's somebody with, let's say, normal heart function, their EF on their preoperative echo is 60%, uh, the first-line drug we would go to to control the map uh, and, and prevent hypoperfusion would just be phenylephrine. Mm-hmm. It's going to ha- have good alpha you know, vasoconstriction, but also not make them tachycardic and actually will lower their heart rate. So that's the perfect drug. If it's somebody with more of a depressed heart function, uh, let's say they're coming in with an EF of 20%, I would probably go to uh, Levofed next, bolus, small bolus doses of Levofed. And then if you're getting into trouble, you know, epinephrine would be your ne- next choice. Great. All right. So main thing, we talked about perfusion for the patient with coronary artery disease. Now, uh, let's go over kind of the basic valve pathologies. Obviously, you can have all kinds of combinations, but let's talk about the stenotic lesion. So with aortic stenosis or mitral stenosis, what are your main hemodynamic goals? You mentioned this a little, and you said you want to keep the heart rate down. You want to keep the afterload and preload up. So to do that, what, do you, what what's your go-to medication for those patients? So typically... For somebody with normal heart function, with somebody with even severe AS or mitral stenosis, we'll still go to uh, phenylephrine first. Uh, it's going to increase your afterload, which is what you need. It's going to keep your heart rate low and hopefully in sinus. Um, the uh, And also we are pretty... Um, vigilant of the fluid that we give them during induction. And these are the patients that all allow a little bit more fluid to keep their preload up, assuming um, their oxygenation is not an issue and they're not in fluid decompensated heart failure. Okay, great. And then the, what we haven't touched on yet are the regurgitant lesions. So what are your what are your goals for management during induction for patients with either aortic regurgitation or um, mitral regurgitation? Again, assuming they're they're not in florid heart failure, we're, uh, the goals for a regurgitant lesion are allowing their heart rate to be a little bit higher. If you're allowing the heart rate to be a little bit higher, they're spending less time less time in systole. Uh, so we allow their heart rate to be either normal or on the higher end. Uh, also, we don't want their afterload to get too extremely high. The higher their afterload, the more likely they're going to have an increased regurgitant volume. Um, and these are also patients that we will, again, uh, allow preload uh, as well to be higher. We don't want them to be on the dry side. And so what, do you, what medications are you going to use to accomplish those goals? So th- these patients, we are um, 
a little bit more forgiving if their blood pressure drops, let's say, with propofol, because it's going to decrease their afterload. If we do need to, to give them uh, some vasopressor support, typically I would go to uh, ephedrine first, um, and then, of course, levofedra epi if needed, if, if the heart is not functioning well. Great. So you're avoiding phenylephrine here because it can decrease the heart rate and increase the afterload, and those are things you want to avoid in these Correct. patients. Great. And then I guess the final one in terms of relatively basic stuff would be pulmonary hypertension, uh, kind of a very feared physiology, mm-hmm. uh, outside, at least outside the cardiac uh, operating room. So when someone comes in uh, with known pulmonary hypertension, what are your goals during induction, if, if at all different for them? So I would definitely do an awake A-line in these patients. Um, I would also, while I'm doing the awake A-line and putting on monitors, I'm already pre-oxygenating them. Um, the things that will kill a patient with severe pulmonary hypertension and and, and worsen right heart uh, dysfunction will be things like acidosis, so avoiding hypercapnia, so being vigilant of the amount of sedation I'm giving them if I even am giving them in, any sedation while I'm doing the awake A-line. We'll also, like I said, pre-oxygenation oxygenation, avoiding uh, hypoxia. Also, anything that's going to cause pain or agitation that could potentially increase my pulmonary vascular resistance and increase uh, my chances of RV dysfunction. Um, So having said all that, um, oftentimes in these patients, I will go ahead and start them. If they have some evidence of right heart dysfunction, I will start them on either epinephrine, norepinephrine, or dopamine um, with induction, knowing that I am going to potentially cause some some worsening right heart dysfunction with induction and intubation. Okay. So you want to help their right heart. You want something with inotropy. Correct. Okay. Um, and then I don't, I don't know if this applies so much to the operating room setting. I sometimes will, will tell residents that if you have someone with pulmonary hypertension and systemic hypotension, that one option is to use vasopressin which at least we think will vasoconstrict peripherally, but not vasoconstrict the pulmonary vasculature. Is that something that you think of in the operating room or not so much? Um, Correct. That is true in terms of the physiology, but um, oftentimes if these patients are going into failure with induction and intubation, it's because their right heart isn't pumping well, and vasopressin is not going to help your right heart pump better. So I will go to something that is a true, that is an inotrope, which vasopressin is not. Right. Okay. Great. So, Megan, with the actual induction uh, of these patients, when you're giving your induction agents, you obviously are going to do this a little differently, or at least think about it a little differently than we would for a healthy patient having an appendectomy. So what are your go-to, or what do you think the most commonly used induction agents are for these different lesions? So it's a mixed bag, and it is very uh, anesthesiologist-dependent, and it depends, uh, honestly, on what type of lesion they have. So if they're coming in for a uh, coronary artery bypass grafting, um, and they're hemodynamically stable, and they have a normal heart function underneath, I'll consider a couple of midazolam, uh, just for some anxiolytics, as well as propofol uh, for induction. Obviously... In these patients, I induce slower than I would on a healthy person coming in for a, a, a appendectomy, per se, per se. Right. Um, and do a slow titration of my, my propofol with phenylephrine. If it's somebody with a very stenotic lesion, aortic stenosis, mitral stenosis, or even a right-sided valvular lesion, uh, I will 
typically avoid propofol. I am someone who likes ketamine. Ketamine is not going to decrease your afterload. It will actually increase your afterload. And as long as you do it in a slow titration, 10, 20 milligrams at a time, they will not, I typically do not see as much tachycardia as you can see if you give a large bolus up front. Right. So I think ketamine is a great, great drug. Um, also, some will use Atomidate. You're not going to have myocardial dysfunction with Atomidate. It's not going to drop your hemodynamics. Um, and one of the things that uh, several people do here at Hopkins is we'll actually do a, a kind of a combined IV induction with volatile anesthetic. So sevoflurane is one of the agents that I use the most. So a little bit of ketamine and a little bit of sevoflurane to get them anesthetized uh, before we introduce paralytics. Great. I love that. So let's just talk a little bit about dosing. So you said, would you, when you say a little ketamine, do you do kind of 20 milligrams and then another 20 and, and watch their hemodynamics as you go while having them breathe SIBO through the mask? Exactly. So I typically wait for them, uh, let's say for an aortic stenosis patient, uh, and they've had a couple of midazolam while we're doing our awake A-line, and they're pretty relaxed but still following commands. And with this, I will give 20 to 40 milligrams of ketamine. Now, we see a wide age variation in cardiac, and somebody that's 30 years old is going to need a lot more anesthetic than somebody that's 85 years old. So we titrate it to effect. Typically, I'll give them, let's say, anywhere from 20 to 50 milligrams of uh, ketamine. And then once they're starting to be a little bit more sedated, I'll turn on some sevoflurane um, anesthetic and remind them that they might smell something a little bit different, feel a little bit funny, but do it in a slow, controlled way. Inductions on cardiac, I think, are safer when they go slow over several minutes versus somebody that's healthy downstairs and in a general OR getting a general procedure. That makes a lot of sense. So when you say you turn on the SIVO, I assume this is not the sort of pediatric turn it to eight move. What are you, what are you turning it to? Typically try, titrate it to about um, 1%, kind of half a MAC, okay. uh, and then go, we go up as needed. Uh, but typically they don't need as much with the IV in, uh, induction as well. Right, great. Okay, so to summarize, for a patient who is otherwise fine and has some kind of stable coronary artery disease and is coming in for a planned cabbage they can get propofol maybe with some phenylephrine along the way in a slow manner. You're not going to bolus 200 milligrams like you might for a healthy 40-year-old having a relatively minor surgery, but you're, you're okay giving propofol. Whereas for a patient who has a tight aortic stenosis or another valvular lesion that you're worried about, or I would imagine a patient who's just not that stable, even if it is just coronary mm-hmm. artery disease, you might be more inclined to go with etomidate or ketamine along with maybe some sevoflurane, some Versed, uh, and and just be very slow and careful. Yes, and I'll also say with the caveat that you know propofol isn't a bad drug to use with these patients. You just have to go very slow, and you need to know the side effects of propofol, and it will drop your afterload. If you go in a controlled fashion with titrating vasopressors and inotropes, it's a perfectly fine drug to use. Just going slow and being vigilant with your hemodynamics. Great. And we should probably mention that ketamine uh, is, at least in higher doses, can definitely have some myocardial depressant effects. Uh, and so uh, you need to be careful with that too, though. The way you're doing it, little by little, you probably are fine and seeing very little. Correct. All right. Great. So I think that's a great introduction to the preparation and induction of these patients. Let's now move on. So after they're induced and intubated, if you haven't already, you're going to do your your lines, your central lines. I assume all of these patients get uh, central lines. Is that right? Correct. We, we like to have central access for two main reasons. Uh, the first reason is volume resuscitations. We like uh, typically uh, a cordis. Uh, also, oftentimes we will put in large 
bore peripheral IVs, but a cordis is, is, is a little bit more stable. Um, and then we'll also typically do uh, what we call a double six. So we'll put in a 16 gauge or a smaller single or double lumen line uh, for infusions and inotropes, uh, very concentrated medications that are going to get to the heart quick. Great. All right. So they already have most of them in a wake A line. If they don't, certainly they get in a sleep A line. They get at least in our in our hospital, they're going to get two, as you said, two central lines, a cordis and a, and a smaller um, single or double lumen, and maybe some peripheral IVs. Obviously, they have an endotracheal tube in place. Now, prior to going on bypass, is there anything unique about the uh, about managing these patients before after you have them induced and before you go on bypass? One thing I will say that we also typically put in uh, this kind of standard of care now uh, is we do a transesophageal echo. So we'll place that probe in actually usually before we put in the central lines because we can visualize the wire going down into the right atrium through the IJ uh, or subclavians, um, and we have a transesophageal echo to look at the heart before the surgeon actually does anything in the in the chest cavity. Um, managing these patients is the same as managing any um, uh, intraoperative anesthetic patient. We make sure they're asleep, they're comfortable, they're not having pain, and we manage their hemodynamics based on their pathophysiology that they're coming to the operating room with. Great. And now the echo probe, of course, is a key uh, component. So maybe let's briefly just review what are the the indications, obviously, are that they're having cardiac surgery, and it's really nice uh, to be able to observe the heart during the surgery. Contraindications, remind me, what what patients do you not or would you not place a, a TEE probe? So any patients that have had... Um esophageal surgery or problems with swallowing, we always ask them before we take them to surgery, do you have any problems swallowing like a piece of meat? Have you ever had esophageal surgery? Do you have esophageal strictures? Do you have um, zinker's diverticulum? Anything like that that's going to put them at increased risk for us causing damage or a perforation. So those type of patients would we would be less likely to put uh, an esophageal probe in. Uh, Also patients that have had gastric bypass or some type of um, hiatal surgery hernia surgery. Not necessarily a contraindication, but we have to be very vigilant of what we do and very gentle when we place the probe. Um, Patients that uh, other contraindications or relative contraindications are bad esophageal varices, um, uh, trauma cases, the patients that have come in with some sort of uh, chest trauma or esophageal trauma, you always have to wonder, should I put a probe in and maybe not. Okay, great. So I think that's really important. Obviously, the the actual function and management of a TEE is going to be beyond the scope of this lecture, but getting one in is going to happen in, in most uh, cardiac cases when not contraindicated. All right, so now let's talk to, about bypass. So you've got your patient, you're you're managing them, and now we're ready to go on bypass. So what are you doing? Uh, let's actually talk briefly. What is bypass, and why is it used during cardiac surgery? So uh, the Cardiopulmonary bypass machine, or sometimes people call it, refer to it as the heart-lung machine or just quote-unquote the pump, um, is a machine that is used to temporarily, temporarily take over the function of the heart and lungs during cardiothoracic surgery. Literally, you, take, you bypass the heart and lungs and you do the function of the heart and lungs with this machine. Uh, when a surgeon has to fix a valve... Um, go inside the heart to fix it, to remove a tumor for a heart transplant. He or she needs a quiet heart and quiet lungs to do these fine intricacies of surgery. So we will, in effect, put this patient on the bypass machine 
and it will take over all the the, the jobs of the heart and the lungs. Um, in effect, uh, or at, at, at most hospitals in the United States, it is run by a perfusionist. Other places around the world, sometimes the anesthesiologist manages it, sometimes uh, nurses manage it. But here uh, in the U.S., it's typically done by a person that's had special training in this machine. So there are two main parts to the the bypass machine. There is a pump, which is typically either a roller pump or a centrifugal pump. And there is also an oxygenator that oxygenates the blood and removes CO2. The, The surgeon will place a venous cannula that will drain the blood from the body into the bypass circuit. It goes into a reservoir where the blood will be filtered, warmed, cooled, oxygenated. Uh, you can also add in uh, drugs like vasopressors, um, volatile anesthetic, uh, and then it is returned back to the body via the arterial cannula, which is placed typically in the ascending aorta, um, and that blood will go to the rest of the body once it's oxygenated. Great. Now, there are, um, you mentioned before, sometimes they'll place, you will place, or the surgeons will place groin lines even before starting the surgery in case they need to crash, quote unquote, crash onto bypass. How do those groin lines differ from uh, more traditional bypass lines? So those lines, typically, those when we say they are peripherally cannulated versus centrally, which is in the chest, uh, the peripheral cannulation is, is through the femoral artery and vein. And those, those cannulas actually are very long cannulas, and they will go up into the IVC, into the liver on the venous side. And then on the arterial side, they'll go into the descending aorta and even higher. Those cannulas are good if you need to crash onto bypass, if the, you have a patient that you're worried about that's very unstable, or patients also that have had prior cardiac surgery. The, the right side of the heart can adhere to the sternum, and the surgeons will worry that when they do incision and sternotomy that they could rip effectively the, the right ventricle um, and have an extremely dangerous situation. So oftentimes they will go on pump um, through the groin lines. Now those groin lines are good, but typically the venous drainage uh, isn't quite as good as a central cannulation, but it is a good um, temporary solution until we can get into the chest. Great. All right. So that's a good overview of what kind of what bypass is. And as you said, it's used because in order to operate on the heart, for the most part, it needs to be not moving, and uh, it needs to be protected, and the lungs need to be out of the way. And the other piece of this to protect the heart is cardioplegia, right, which we don't need to get into all the details of, but in general, that is a, a, the way it's a chemical, essentially, or a solution that is pumped through the coronary arteries so that the heart stops and therefore isn't using oxygen. Is that right? Correct. So cardioplegia kind of textbook answer is it is a high potassium solution that changes the resting membrane potential of the myocytes and a cause, causes the heart to arrest. So there's no electrical activity. There's typically two ways we give cardioplegia. There is antegrade in which the surgeon will usually put in a small arterial cannula in the aorta that will deliver cardioplegia Polygia solution uh, into the uh, sinuses of Valsalva or the aortic root and down into the coronary vessels. So it's antegrade, it's going forward flows into the coronary arteries. Or uh, you can do, or and or I should say, sometimes we do both, we can do retrograde cardioplegia in which there is another cannula that is in the coronary sinus and you give the cardioplegia through the venous system of the heart. Great. Okay, so we stopped the heart. Well, hopefully we've gone on bypass and stopped the heart. And 
is there anything uh, let's back up i guess yeah. before we've done that when you're getting ready to go on bypass what are you prepping what are you thinking about what do you have to do so there's one huge important part before we go on bypass and before we even put in the the cannulas is we have to anticoagulate the patient uh, as you know anytime the that blood stands still even in the body or in a in a in a tube outside of the body it's going to clot so we have to anticoagulate the patient uh, typically that is done with heparin which facilitates antithrombin 3 causing uh, the prevention of thrombin formation um, and we will give very large doses of heparin to the patient prior to going on bypass Typically, recommendations are that you dose it about 300 to 350 international units per kilogram of patient body weight. Um, and we check a activated clotting time, otherwise, or also called an ACT, um, to, which is a measure of how long it takes for whole blood to clot. Typically, in a patient that is not anticoagulated, that has not had heparin yet, their ACT will be about 120 to 130 seconds. When we give that large bolus of heparin, we uh, and, and guidelines show that your, your ACT needs to be about 480 seconds, so 120 to 130, all the way to 480 seconds once you've had that heparin. So once we give the heparin, we wait a few minutes for it to circulate, and then we check an ACT level and make sure that we are fully anticoagulated and good enough to go on, on bypass prior to that. Otherwise, it can be catastrophic. Great. So one of a fun kind of question that can come up on boards is you continue to give heparin. You give heparin, the ACT is not making it high enough to 480 or higher. You give more heparin, it's still not. And what do you do? And so uh, the possible answer is actually to give either FFP or antithrombin-3 I love this question because it's so counterintuitive if you don't know the physiology. Correct. You think, why would you give FFP if you're trying to anticoagulate someone? And correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason is that if you don't, because as you said, heparin works by combining with antithrombin-3. If your body doesn't have enough antithrombin-3, heparin can't do its job and you won't successfully anticoagulate. Correct. So so FFP has antithrombin-3 in it. Um, that is a usually a p- fairly quick uh, product to get, and typically that is ordered even before patients will come to the operating room, uh, so we can give antithrombin three. However, you are exposing them to all the risks of giving a, a blood product. You, you also um, FDA has approved antithrombin three. It's a small bottle, and you can give antithrombin three as well. It's a little bit more expensive, takes a while to get um, uh, from the blood bank, but you can give that, and um, that will in effect. W- allow enough antithrombin-3 for heparin to bind. And, and we most oftentimes we'll see this in patients that have been on the floor for days waiting for their surgery and have been on a heparin drip. Right. So They've eaten up their yep. antithrombin-3 essentially. Okay. So you've anti, you, you have to think about anticoagulation. You have to get your heparin ready. What else do you think about or prepare for leading up to going on bypass? So... We also uh, discussed with the, the, the perfusionist and the surgeon, what is our hemoglobin? So patients, uh, typically when you go on bypass, there's a lot of tubes, and you're going to hemodilute the patient. So if they're starting with a hemoglobin of 7 or 8, we're going to dilute them down based on their body size to, let's say, a hemoglobin of 4 or 5. And we discussed that with the perfusionist prior to going on bypass. So if they're very anemic like that, we will give them blood. Usually we give the perfusionist blood and they will prime the pump instead of with saline or plasmolite, they'll prime the pump with blood so we don't dilute them that low. Because when you say there's lots of tubes, those tubes obviously can't be filled with air or we'd be giving air to the patient. So those tubes are typically filled with saline, 
which will then dilute the blood. So Correct. you can fill it with blood instead of saline if you want to, if you're worried about a patient starting off fairly low. Correct. Okay. Is there a cutoff in your mind when you would prime the pump with blood? Is it seven? Is it eight? Or does it just depend on the patient? So there's actually a formula that the perfusionist will use. So if after we put in all our lines and we're, we're waiting for the surgeons, we actually draw the first arterial blood glass and we'll actually also get a hemoglobin level. So we'll, if it comes back at 12, they figure out what the size of cannulas they've used and the body size of the patient, what they're going to dilute to if we don't give blood. So if it comes back and they say the hemoglobin level is going to be six, we're going to give some blood to the perfusionist to prime the pump. If it comes back at anywhere between seven and 10, most guidelines will say that's a totally acceptable level to hemodilute between a hemoglobin of seven to 10. Right. Meaning you'll get down to seven to 10. Correct. Okay. Great. So we've talked about hemoglobin kind of preparation, heparin uh, administration, anything else leading up to bypass? Other than making sure your electrolytes are good um, and uh, talking with your findings, we always talk with the surgeon about the findings on echo. If they're coming for a, a mitral valve replacement, do our findings on transesophageal echo in the OR correlate with what we have seen in their preoperative echo and make sure there's nothing else that needs to be fixed or are we doing the, we want to make sure we're not doing the wrong operation or missing something. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So what happens when you go on bypass? So it's a collaborative effort. We want to make sure the perfusionist is ready, the anesthesiologist is ready, and the surgeon is, of course, ready. So the surgeon, when the surgeon says they're ready to start doing the more intricate parts of the procedure, um, we go on bypass. And that is, of course, after they have usually placed central cannulas in the heart. So they will put an aortic cannula in the ascending aorta that will deliver blood to the, the great vessels, the brachiocephalic, left carotid, left subclavian, and the descending aorta. Uh, and then they will also typically put in a, a venous cannula, which goes in the right atrium, and it will drain the SVC and the IVC um, as well. So they put in both those cannulas. Once those cannulas look good um, and the, the surgeon says they're ready to go on bypass, the perfusionist will actually take literally take off a clamp off the, the venous line, um, and it, via siphon effect will drain the right heart, through that venous cannula into the reservoir of the pump. And at the same time, the perfusion will also turn a knob to turn on the flows of their pump. And that translates into giving blood back through the aortic cannula. When you turn the pump on, and, and we watch the perfusionist do this, you'll see your arterial waveform dampen. And ultimately, when they're on full flows, the goal is for your arterial waveform to be totally flat, meaning that you have sucked all the blood out of the right side of the heart, it's going to the circuit, and then you give it back into the aorta, and there's no flow going through the heart. Okay. And so there's no flow going through the heart, so there's no pulsatility, so your A-line is flat. Correct. Now, it's not flat at zero. It's flat at whatever your map is. Right. And the perfusionists, when we're on pump, uh, the perfusionists control the, the, the mean arterial pressure. And they do, that by, they do that by changing the flow of the pump. And they will also, just like we do, they will give um, uh, vasopressors ionotropes if needed. I remember uh, the, really the, the almost the only vasopressor our perfusionist would use was phenylephrine. I don't know if that's true here. Do they give a variety of things, or is that their first? Phenylephrine is first line. They'll also sometimes ask for vasopressin. We don't like to give that as much because we worry about other end-organ ischemia, but mm-hmm. vasopressin is also an option. Very rarely we have to do things like levofed, but that's very rare. Okay. Usually, if you're having that much problem with flow, you're either your cannulas aren't in the right spot, um, the patient's floridly septic, there's something else wrong 
um, that that you're missing. Okay. So once you're on bypass, your perfusionist is managing the pressure through adjustment in the flows and through giving some vasopressors if needed. What are, what's happening with anesthesia during bypass? So once you have verified that the perfusionist is happy, I always look over to the perfusionist and say, does everything look good? They give you a thumbs up. They say everything's good. Um, and your arterial waveform is good. You have a, a mean arterial pressure that you're happy with. Um, then you can actually turn off your ventilator. So literally flipping the switch like just if you were going to bag the patient. You turn off the ventilator. You can turn off your oxygen, your flows, and you turn off your anesthetic gas. Uh, the, there's two ways, just like in an, any general anesthesia case, that you can give anesthesia to that patient while they're on pump. Um, most commonly, it's done through volatile anesthetic that is an isofluorine chamber, just like on our anesthesia machine, that is attached to the bypass circuit, and the perfusionist turns to 1%. Uh, the other option is TIVA. Uh, some places do that as well. So either one is totally fine, and TIVA you give through your central lines like you would normally. Okay. People think about bypasses being a, a time at risk for awareness. Is that because you're not giving anesthetic? Someone, maybe the perfusionist is. Why? Why do we worry more about awareness during or related to bypass? So, when you're giving isoflurane via the the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit, uh, there's no way to really measure you know, what their MAC level is. You assume that if it's somebody that you have had in the operating room and you've induced them and they've been on 1% isoflurane that, uh, through the anesthesia machine, that, that that's going to be as good through the, the, the bypass circuit. However, there's dilutional components and, and you just don't know. So there is an increased chance of awareness with bypass. And, and, and you know, that's one of the first things we think of. If they're having a problem with hypertension on bypass, it's could be pain and awareness. And, and typically, if that is the case, we give narcotic and we go up on our isoflurane. Okay. So they're on bypass. The perfusionist is managing the blood pressure and the anesthetic. Your ventilator is off. What is the anesthesiologist doing uh, during this time? So they're several things that we look at when we're on bypass. We frequently will check along with the perfusionist our activated clotting time to make sure that our heparin dose is appropriate. And oftentimes we either put the patient on a heparin drip or we give bolus doses of heparin. Mm Got to keep that ACT greater than 480 seconds. Also, uh, Per protocol here, about every 30 minutes we send a, uh, or every hour we send an arterial blood gas and a core four, which is hemoglobin, sodium, potassium, glucose. We'll also check lactates and calcium levels. And we do that every 30 minutes to make sure that the perfusionist and the the bypass circuit is managing these electrolytes. We want to keep everything normal. Um, and we will control, for example, if they become hyperglycemic, we will start them on insulin while we're on, on bypass. I already talked to you about the hemoglobin levels. If we are having too much hemodilution, we will give blood and sometimes even FFP on bypass to keep our, our hemoglobin in the range usually of about 7 to 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things we look at, um, we talked about making sure the patient remains anesthetized, making sure the perfusionist is keeping them on 1%. Um, the other thing we, we are very vigilant on is making sure, and we haven't talked about this completely yet, but making sure that the heart is arrested once the aortic cross clamp is on. The surgeon, when they are ready to start doing the intricacies of the procedure, will place an aortic cross clamp after we are on bypass on the ascending aorta. And this cross clamp is placed in between the 
aortic root and the aortic cannula. And once the aortic cross clamp is on, that's when we give the cardioplegia to arrest the heart. So we make sure that the heart stays arrested. As you can imagine, if the heart was trying to eject against a huge afterload, which is the aortic cross clamp, that could be devastating. Right. So we make sure that there uh, is no electrical activity. And usually the cardioplegia solution is re-dosed every 20 to 30 minutes. Okay. And can I say one more thing that we always look at? Because we have that aortic cross clamp on, um, sometimes if you have a leaky aortic valve or you can have LV distension, and we want to make sure we look on echo, and we also have the surgeon look in the field and make sure that the heart isn't getting distended. Uh, that's one thing I always tell uh, our residents is, is, is the, the remind them of the law of, Lapla- law of Laplace. If the heart is getting distended, if we're not emptying it adequately with bypass, then that increases wall tension, which results in increasing oxygen consumption. So law Laplace is pressure times radius is wall tension and oxygen consumption. So we want to make sure that that LV is totally decompressed during the operation. Right. And do surgeons sometimes place a, a what's called an LV vent to kind of suck out anything that does accumulate in the LV? Absolutely. So they, they stick that in depending on what kind of surgery they're doing. They stick these LV vents in different ways, sometimes through the pulmonary veins, sometimes directly through the mitral valve. Um, but that allows the, the LV to drain if there is drainage that results back into the LV. All right. So we're preparing for the cross clamp, making sure the heart is stopped during the cross clamp so that it's not pushing against that, making sure the LV stays empty, making sure the heart doesn't start beating by continuing to give cardioplegia every 20 to 30 minutes, as you said. Now, the lungs are are stopped, the heart is stopped, the surgeon's operating. And at some point, we're going to start thinking about coming off bypass. So what are you doing to prepare for that? What's on your mind as you start getting ready for that? So again, this is also a very collaborative effort with the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and the perfusionist. And um, there's seven things I can think of, um, uh, basically check boxes that we have to check before coming off bypass. Once the surgeon is done fixing whatever he's going to fix, he will take off, one of the first steps is to take off the aortic cross clamp. Sometimes um, when he takes off the aortic cross clamp, um, the heart will start beating again pretty quickly. So we want the heart to be go back into normal sinus rhythm. Sometimes if it's a short bypass run and a short cross clamp time and it's a healthy heart, it'll just magically start beating again. Other times it needs a little bit of help. Sometimes it comes back in an abnormal rhythm and we have to defibrillate. Uh, and 95% of the time we also put in pacemaker wires and sometimes we have to temporarily pace the heart um, until it gains its intrinsic, intrinsic rhythm back, the, back itself. While we are Getting the heart beating again, we're also rewarming. We typically cool the heart when we're on bypass, which allows or decreases oxygen consumption. So when we're ready to come off, we're going to start rewarming. And we typically try to get to a, a, a bladder temperature of about 35.5 Celsius. Um, so we're rewarming. So making sure we're warm. The other thing coming up from what? How, how low do you usually go during this, the surgery? So it depends on the surgeon, and it depends on the surgery. So if we... Um, and there are different ways to cool the patient. Sometimes the patients will put ice on the heart, literally just throw ice on the heart. The and, surgeons will put Yes, yeah. and, and they'll check the temperature of the heart. Typically, people used to say 10 degrees Celsius. Now there's a, kind of a trend to not really cool as much, 20 degrees Celsius. So that's typically what the heart's at. And then we'll slowly rewarm. You've got to rewarm slowly because they have shown that if you rewarm too rapidly, it worsens reperfusion injury as well as neurologic injury as well. So, so the heart 
is you're referring to the temperature of the heart being 10 or up now maybe 20 degrees Celsius. And then the the patient as a whole, like the bladder temperature or the esophageal temperature is going to be So we can go down into the 20s. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, they do, the perfusionist can cool the blood and we'll cool the blood down to the 20s or whatever the goal is that's discussed prior to the surgery. For example, if we do circa rest, the body gets really cold. Right. Um, if it's a you know 20-minute coronary artery bypass graft, you don't need to get as cold. Um, but we will, the, the perfusionist will slowly rewarm the body as well. Okay. Great. So you've got, you get cold during surgery, you're going to warm up when you're getting ready to come off bypass. So cross clamp comes off. We try to make sure we're in a a reasonable rhythm, Mm -hmm. either by defibrillating or pacing or hoping the patient does it on their own. We warm. What else do we do? So we, we look at the heart. So we look at the heart on echo. Um, did whatever, you know, did, does the patient have any regional wall motion abnormalities? If they got a new valve, is the valve opening and closing normally? Or are there any leaks? So we look on the echo and make sure that everything looks good. The other thing, the surgeon will look at the heart in the field. Is the heart getting distended? Is, is the heart beating well? Are there any, is there bleeding anywhere? Um, so we look at the heart. Other things we look at, we look at the electrolytes. We want the electrolytes to be normal. We want our potassium to be 4. We want our sodium to be normal. We want our iCal, iCal uh, to be normal. Um, and, and again, going back to hemoglobin, we want the hemoglobin to be anywhere higher than 7. Typically, it's higher than that, but anything higher than 7 we're usually happy with. Um, also, when we're starting to evaluate the heart, we'll start sometimes inotropes. Um, or vasopressors, depending on what we think is going on. Uh, if the heart prior to bypass had an EF of 20%, we know they're going to need support coming off. So we'll start, for example, epinephrine, maybe at a pretty high dose, 0.08, 0.1 mics per kg per minute. Um, if it was a short bypass time, a short cross-clamp time, hopefully they don't need any ionotropes. So we discuss that with the surgeon. And then the last thing we do before we come off is we start to ventilate the patient. We turn back on the ventilator, we inflate the lungs, we make sure both lungs are are adequately ventilating, um, and we turn back on our oxygen and our volatile anesthetic. Do you do a recruitment maneuver to to inflate the lungs, or how do you get them back to reinflate? Absolutely. We always do recruitment maneuvers. The surgeons have sometimes been banging on the lungs. Um, Oftentimes we have patients with not very good lungs. They have bad COPD, uh, emphysema, even pneumonia. So we we do several recruitment maneuvers to make sure those lungs and those alveoli are nice and open. Okay, great. So those were the seven things. The cross-clamp comes off meaning you're looking at the rhythm, that's one. Two is to warm. Three is looking at your echo and making sure that the heart looks mm-hmm. okay. Four is your electrolytes. Five, your hemoglobin. Six, your inotropes. And seven, turning the ventilator back on. Yep. All right. So that's the preparation for coming up bypass. Now, sometimes people come off very easily, and sometimes people struggle to come off. And I guess the extreme would be people who, who cannot come off and end up on ECMO. Right. Um, but without getting into that extreme, when people are, when you're struggling to get someone off bypass, you know, what does that tell you and how do you, how do you address it? Well, so first I'll go, I'll say that, you know, coming off bypasses and I don't think of it as like flipping a light switch. It's not on or off. Okay. We do it slowly. So typically when we are on, when we say we are on full flows, we mean the, the flow on the bypass machine is 45, four to five liters per minute, just like a normal cardiac output would be for an average person. Okay. So when we are ready and we have checked those seven things and they all look good, the surgeon will say, 
or we can say, okay, cut back on your flows to the perfusionist. So go down to four liters, go down to three liters, go down to two liters. And as they do that, they that will allow more blood to be left in the heart and re- it makes the heart start to work again and start to eject again. And we're looking in the field. We're also looking on our echo. We're looking at our hemodynamics. What is our CVP? What is our mean arterial pressure? Um, and if the heart looks good, then we come off bypass, if all those things look good. If the heart is struggling and we start to come down on our flows, if we're at two liters and, the, and, the, and there's regional wall motion abnormalities or it was a sick heart to begin with and we're just not ejecting, not pumping, we know we might need more support. So there are a couple of options. Sometimes you just have to wait for the heart to get a little bit warmer, give it some time. Other options are increasing your ionotropes, going up on your epinephrine, adding a different ionotrope. Something like um, no Exactly. And we can go into those more. Um, and and there, it also depends on what is the abnormality. Is it the right heart that's having dysfunction? Is it the left heart that's having dysfunction? Or is it both? So those will kind of affect our, our decision points. In patients that were worried about ischemia and LV dysfunction, uh, kind of one of the first-line treatments is an intra-aortic balloon pump. So that is a, a, a balloon that is put in typically uh, through the femoral artery into the descending aorta, and it basically takes workload off of the LV. It increases your cardiac output a little bit. It'll increase coronary perfusion pressure, and it'll decrease some of the workload of the LV. So that's one of the first things we will try if the LV is struggling. Um, after that, <laughs> if that if the heart is still not doing well and we've maximized our inotrope, we know our hemoglobin's good, we know our electrolytes are good, we've put in a balloon pump and we're still struggling, the next step would uh, be uh, ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which sometimes hearts need that for a day or two to recover and then typically will be weaned from it. Okay. And, and that is essentially an extension of cardiopulmonary yeah, bypass. Yeah, it's like a mini form. Right. Correct. And you can go to the ICU on ECMO and be monitored there. All right. So with it, before we get there, maybe before the balloon pup, you said we're going to try to kind of maximize our inotropes. Epinephrine is kind of what you said would be the you'd usually start on, even maybe before coming off if you knew someone might need it. Uh, and then you can titrate that up a little. Here, I, I feel like since I'm, I often receive these patients in the ICU, we uh, often go to milrinone fairly quickly. Uh, is that is that your interpretation as well? So, I like milrinone. I know several several surgeons here are who don't like it. Now, milrinone is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, and it actually does great for um, uh, increasing. Uh, cardiac output contractility, um, especially when you're having right heart dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the caveats with it is one thing you have to be careful about it is it will decrease your systemic vascular resistance. So if you're having a heart that's struggling and you're trying to keep your your coronary perfusion pressure up, sometimes we will put on milrinone and continue our epi or norepi to balance out that decrease. But, But milrinone is really a great drug. Great. All right. Any, anything else you think of in terms of things you think about or, or ways you deal with issues coming off bypass? So there are, I would say, five main things that we see commonly coming off bypass. Most often when we come off bypass and our mean arterial pressure is low, it's because we're underfilled. It's because we're low on volume. So we can give volume through our cortis. Uh, we can also typically... After we come off bypass, the aortic cannula is left in for a little bit, and the perfusionist can actually give us uh, 
some blood. So we can say, give us 100, give us 200, which is basically giving 100 more cc's of blood into the arterial circulation. And you will actually see usually a, a, a nice increase in your mean arterial pressure. So that's the most common thing is just underfilling. We need to get caught up on volume. Okay. Okay. Um, after that, um, there are four main reasons, and TEE, I think, is where it becomes really helpful with this. Um, so you can have a structural problem. So can uh, if they fix a valve, is there a leak? Is there a problem with a different valve? Did we Do we have um, um, uh, pericardial effusion, something like that, something structurally that we need to go back on bypass for? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that we, we, we rule out. Um, the second thing is sometimes we see uh, dynamic abnormalities, and with that I mean... Uh, usually related to hypovolemia, but we oftentimes, let's say somebody that comes into the OR for aortic stenosis, they have a big, thick left ventricle, and they sometimes will have sigmoid hypertrophy. And when you get low on your volume status, that can that big, thick LV can cause an obstruction in the left ventricular outflow tract and effectively block off your cardiac output. So usually that's supported with increasing our afterload, increasing our volume, and we just wait it out and we get better. So that's one of the things we see coming off. And one of the, the third thing we see um, probably most commonly is LV or RV dysfunction. We see a new regional wall motion abnormality or we see global hypokinesis. Uh, and we kind of already talked about we do vasopressin uh, or vasopressors, inotropes, balloon pumps, things like that, right. um, and, and to, to figure out the pro- problem. Um, and the last thing that we sometimes see is vasoplegia. Cardiac surgery itself, as well as the the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, creates a huge inflammatory response, and patients can be very um, kind of, we call it leaky. So they're just vasoplegic, they're not responding, and usually that gets better within 24 hours. And so that obviously, if that's the issue, can be treated with peripheral vasoconstrictors, uh, most commonly probably norepinephrine, or vasopressin. vasopressin. Uh, and then uh, kind of at an extreme, if that's not working, sometimes we'll try methylene blue, which uh, is a uh, kind of an indirect vasoconstrictor by scavenging nitric oxide and uh, also by being an MAO inhibitor uh, and therefore increasing the duration of norepinephrine effect, uh, you get an added uh, benefit. I, I don't we don't use it that commonly, but in someone who's profoundly vasoplegic, we'll try it. Yeah, usually it's the last the last ditch effort to try to uh, uh, replace this, but usually it's basically resolves with time. Great. All right. The other thing we didn't mention, but that I assume is a important piece of the preparation for coming off bypass, and and that is obviously getting your protamine ready so we can reverse the heparin. Exactly. So uh, protamine uh, is typically what we use to reverse heparin. Um, it is a cation that binds heparin and causes, basically forms a salt and, and, and renders heparin inactive. Um, so typically the kind of the algorithmic dose is for every 100 units of heparin, you will give one milligram of protamine. So somebody that got 40,000 units of heparin will get 400 of protamine. And protamine um, is a great drug, but it can also be dangerous. So we give this very slowly. There, there are uh, four main reactions that can happen with protamine. The first that we see the most common is it causes a histamine release, mast cell degranulation, they get hypotensive. So we typically give protamine peripherally and very slowly over about five to ten minutes. Um, it can also cause an anaphylaxis reaction 
or an anaphylactoid type reaction. And then the last one, which can be the most catastrophic, is it can cause very severe pulmonary hypertension and therefore right heart failure coming off. So when I always give hep- when I give heparin, I'm I look at my echo, I look at my CVP, and I, I make sure protamine, right when you give protamine. Thank you. Yep. When I give protamine, I have my my echo live looking at the right heart, and I also watch my CVP and make sure that my right heart is not suffering from a pulmonary hypertension reaction. Okay. And then the key, as you said, being to give that protamine slowly. Correct. And some will even advocate giving a test dose um, in, in patients that have either been exposed to it before, patients that are at increased risk for having a bad reaction to, to protamine, are patients that have had a vasectomy or have been exposed to NPH insulin in the past. Great. All right. We've covered a lot of great stuff. The one question I we didn't uh, talk about that I want to just ask you, maybe you can briefly talk about is for an off-pump cabbage, meaning a, a coronary artery bypass graft that's being done not with cor- cardiopulmonary bypass, obviously take take everything we talked about about bypass out of the out of the picture. Are, are there other, you know, things you keep in mind for those? So those are great cases, and they're very fun cases. They can be very, very challenging, almost more challenging than a, in a, a, a case where you go on pump because you're having to manage uh, this heart while they're operating on it. So typically these patients, we do the same setup. They have the same lines because you never know that you might need to crash on bypass. So you, you manage them the same from the beginning. When the surgeon is ready to start sewing on the grafts, um, we typically start... Uh, 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 my favorite drug is norepinephrine. It will increase your 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 coronary perfusion pressure because it's going to increase your afterload, and it doesn't make the patients too tachycardic uh, compared to like epinephrine, for example. Uh, some pac- some people always also use phenylephrine for these cases, a peripheral vasoconstrictor. Mm-hmm. So uh, typically, we we just use norepinephrine in my cases. And then the surgeons, the, the tricky part is when they manipulate the heart, uh, they can distort, obviously, the, the anatomy and therefore the blood flow out to the rest of the body. So it can be a demanding operation. But when it works well, it's very quick, uh, and you have a quick surgeon, and, and the lesions are at the prime position where you don't have to manipulate the heart too well. It's a, it, it almost feels like you're not even doing a cardiac case. Great. All right. So we talked about the different lesions, uh, pure coronary artery disease versus uh, stenotic lesions versus regurgitant lesions and how to prepare for those, how to induce those patients with those lesions. We talked about getting ready for bypass, going on bypass, managing patients while on bypass, coming off bypass, and we talked briefly about off-pump cabs just now. Megan, is there anything else we should give our listeners before we sign off? I think that's good. I think that's a good start. I think it's a great mm-hmm. start. And, and we, as I said, maybe we'll rope you back in for a, a more advanced, specific talks in the future. But for now, thank you so much for coming. This was fantastic. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Remember, you can go to the website, com where you can leave a comment. Is this how you manage patients in your cardiac ORs? Do you do anything differently? Let us know. When you leave comments, everyone can see them and everyone can learn from your comments. You can also sign up for the ACRAC mailing list by going to ACRAC.com and in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage, signing up for our mailing list. You'll receive notifications when a new episode comes out, as well as any interesting tidbits that might get sent around. Also, if you haven't already, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating about ACRAC. It helps others find the show. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Megan Kostibas, I'm Jed Wolpaw. 
Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.